0: Bible again to Matthew chapter 6. <laughs> We're focusing again on the kingdom of piety, the inner dynamic that motivates the kingdom morality. I forgot to call your attention to one thing, and that is that. The Jewish word for alms, which we have at the beginning of the chapter, we're not discussing that part because I think it got included in my last message, uh, the practical part of it. But the word for alms, they say, and here again, I don't know Hebrew, but they say the word for alms in the Jewish, in, in Hebrew language is the word for righteousness. We are so worried about a works of religion that we don't like to talk about practical things. But the fact of the matter is, according to Matthew 25 and everything I taught in the last lesson, that is probably where God focuses. What are we doing with our stuff? What are we doing with this material world? And uh, so all of this was very important to the Jewish people, and I could give you quotes on that if I had some other notes here, which I don't have. So we want to talk about the kingdom prayer, or, or we could call this perfection in prayer. The goal of true religion, I told you, is perfection. And God loves people who are passionately pursuing that goal, even though they will never completely reach it. Every step in that direction is what God is looking for. Our, we have a passion to be perfect. Jesus said, be perfect even as your Father is in heaven is perfect. Paul said, I strive to present every man perfect in Christ. He said, I press toward the goal. I, I, I haven't attained it, but I'm pressing toward it. As we have verse after verse it emphasizes that our whole passion in life is what we say, oh, to be like thee, oh, to be like thee. And he, of course, is perfect. That's our passion. And God takes that passion to be the actual uh, reality. All right. Now, in Matthew 6, Jesus exposes the great hindrance to this perfection in prayer. It's a divided personality. In fact, he talks about a divided personality in all of Matthew chapter 6. I'll just give you seven ways that a religious man can have a divided personality. Number one, you do your beautiful religious acts with a divided motive. You give to God, but you do it also to be seen of men. Number two, you pray in two directions, to be heard of God and to be overheard by men. You fast with divided purposes. You do it before God, and yet you hope that men will give you credit for being abstemious. Number four, you try, you try to lay up treasure in two directions, upon earth and in heaven. You see in two directions. Your outlook is divided. You are trying to be loyal in two directions, trying to serve God and mammon. And you are anxious in two directions, toward what you should eat and what you should drink, and also toward the kingdom of God. If we're not careful, we are constantly divided. <laughs> and and that's what we're seeing. here. self was put out in chapter 5, but if we're not careful, it comes back in the form of religion. Prayer, giving, fasting, self is still on the throne, if we're not careful, alright? So, he tells us that we are not supposed to pray the delusive prayer, which is a prayer that is focused on men rather than on God. Now, the Jews considered prayer greater than all good works besides all. It said, they said, he who prays within his house surrounds it with a wall stronger than iron. But Jesus warned against meaningless public, pub, public works. He warned against long public prayers. I remember there was a church I went to and they would call on the deacon every Sunday to lead in prayer. And you knew that his prayer, and I timed him one time, 20 minutes long. And it was a long experience to listen to that man pray. I often wondered whether he prayed 20 minutes at home each day. I often wondered that. I don't know. Maybe he did. Maybe he prayed an hour. Maybe he was just a great praying man. But I do know that his public prayers were longer than any public prayers I had ever heard in my life. <laughs> and he warned against repetitive prayers. Long prayers, repetitive prayers, and meaningless public words. And so Jesus says the desirable prayer is a prayer that's prayed in secret, offered to God alone in a private place with the door shut for no one can hear but God. Alright? Because prayer is a two-way communication. God speaks to us as we speak to Him. He says if you bring your gift to the altar and their remembrance, when we do our devotion, God speaks to us and we remember that here's His brother or here's this part of my life that should be different. Okay? So he tells us to pray secretly. All right? So he gives us the disciples' prayer. That's what we want to concentrate on. And I'll try to get us out of here uh, by 12 o'clock. I promise you. I will quit at 12. If it's in the middle of the sentence. All right. <laughs> this prayer was given at the, the, the request. It's an awful thing to be talked about. And I don't want that to happen to anybody. Uh, this prayer was given at the request of the disciples. They saw that Jesus' secret was prayer. They never asked him to teach them how to preach, how to heal, or how to cast out devils. They never asked him any of those things. All they ever asked him them to, all they ever asked him to teach them was how to pray. Because I think they saw that that was the secret of everything else. Okay. He was praying when the Holy Spirit came upon him at his baptism. He was praying after he fed the 5,000. He was praying all night before he chose his disciples. He prayed after healing and teaching, Luke 5, 16. He was praying when he was transfigured. He said demons cannot be cast out without prayer. He prayed in Gethsemane before the, uh, the crucifixion, and that's the interesting one to me. And I want you to turn to Mark chapter 14, verse 33. Mark chapter thirteen verse forty three says this. I'm sorry, that is the wrong passage. It's Mark chapter fourteen verse thirty three. Brother, the Wednesday, I have problems with my numbers too. All right, Mark chapter fourteen verse thirty three. Verse and he taketh with him Peter and James and John and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. I looked those words up one time, and they mean he was stricken with terror and horror and was desperately depressed. Now, if I knew I was going to be crucified, I'd be stricken with terror and with horror, and I would be desperately depressed. And Jesus had that same experience. And how did he deal with it? With prayer. And after that prayer was over, he went out and faced that whole situation no ruffled nerves, toys, Every word, every action was under control. The battle is in the closet. The problem is we think the battle's out there where we're facing the issues. No, 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 no. The battle is in the closet. The disciples didn't do what Jesus did, and they're the ones that acted the way we would act when they finally faced the issue. Okay, so. The battle is won in the closet. If we win the battle in the closet, we will be able to face life's issues the way Jesus faced them. Okay? Neglect the closet and go forth to meet failure and defeat like the flustered disciples. J. Oswald Smith said there are seven words that would change the world. You have not because you ask not. He said if you ever got those seven words in your head the way they should be, you would would be a very different person. In fact, Samuel said to Israel that neglected prayer is sin. He said, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Did you ever think of neglected prayer as sin? Well, sin means to miss the mark. And obviously, neglected prayer misses the mark. Okay? So he gave us this model prayer, which we want to talk about. We should pray this prayer very often. People say, well, shouldn't we pray spontaneous prayers? This might be vain repetition. Well, it can be vain repetition if you just say it. When I pray this prayer, I try to put my whole life and thought into praying it, and then sometimes I get halfway through it and realize that I was doing it meaninglessly and I have to go back and start over again. But if you pray this prayer with all your heart, I can guarantee you one thing you will not ask amiss. Because Jesus gave this prayer. If Spontaneous prayers, you might pray for things you shouldn't pray for. You might pray amiss, this, you on yourself, who knows. But if you pray this prayer, you will be praying the exact will of God. And the Bible says if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And this prayer guarantees that you're praying according to God's will. The things in it are His will, as you shall see as we go along. The Anabaptists made a lot of this prayer. In fact, I saw uh, a piece of Anabaptist literature one time that showed how a man used his prayer to instruct a person for baptism. And if you look at it until we're done with it, you'll realize that everything is in this prayer. It would be a perfect instruction for baptism. And they had a, at least one Anabaptist man used it that way. All right. Well, the first thing we see is that God is first. The first part of this prayer, is about God. It's not about our needs, it's about God and and our response to Him. Not only that, but this prayer covers the past, the present, and the future. We ask for forgiveness of sins that have already occurred. We ask for bread for today, which is now. We ask for deliverance from temptation in the future, so it includes the past, the present, and the future. It includes all of life. So, let's learn to pray this prayer. Number one, we need to learn to pray as a son. We need to learn to pray as a son. God is our Father. How do children relate to a father? Well, small children especially believe Dad can do anything. If Dad says it, my Daddy says Did you ever hear a child say that? I had a seventh grade teacher who said her father read her a story about an elephant before they went to bed. And he pronounced it elephant, like parents do, just to make the story interesting to themselves, maybe more than to the child. He pronounced it elephant. The hallway is a story. The next morning, coincidentally, the teacher read a story about an elephant. And she pronounced it elephant, and she said, my little hand shot right into the ear. Teacher, you are wrong. That word is elephant. And she distinctly remembered the teacher went to great pains to prove that she was wrong and never accomplished that. Her dad said elephant, and that was the pronunciation of the word. That's how children relate to a father. Absolute trust. An animal has a tail torn off. The child brings it to dad. Dad, would you fix this? They They believe their dad can do anything. They believe anything their dad says. He is the absolute authority. He is the absolute most powerful person that can do anything in their life. That's what we need to believe about God. Our father. You are a father. All right? That is an amazing thing when you think about it, that God has chosen us to be His sons. Now, if I'd have been God and I'd have said these people are in bad trouble, they're headed for perdition, we will save them, but we'll make them servants in the kingdom. I'd have thought that was great. That would have been good enough for me. Why did He choose to take us into His family and plant all His inheritance with His son and with us? I'm a little bit like Gypsy Smith who was still preaching for all he was worth late into his 80s and singing his glory sound, Oh, that will be glory for me. And Fleming Revel, who was his publisher, said to him, Gypsy, what is the secret of this passion? way into your 80s. And he said, I have never lost the wonder that God made me one of his children. Not a servant. Now, we consider ourselves servants. We should. But he considers us children. In fact, John says, what manner of love has the Father bestowed upon us? Look up that word manner. It's strange. What strange love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. That's a strange love that you would not have expected. And we have a privileged relationship. God, the creator of the whole universe, (laughs) is our Father. We have a song in this hymnal. 823, you can look it up. One of the verses says, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions which you bring. It's a trusting relationship. We are told, Everyone that asketh, receiveth. That just struck me a few years ago. Everyone who asketh, receiveth. He that seeketh, findeth. Jesus, to him that knocketh, shall be opened. These are promises. Now, I do refer you to the the verb. It has an E-T-H on it. And uh, Brother Milo can clarify this, whether I'm right or wrong. But they tell me that in the King James Version, if it has an E-T-H, not always, but many times, it means continuous action. And so, he that continually seeks life. he that continually asks, receives, he that continually knocks, which him it shall be open. And Jesus said, we need to persevere and persist in prayer. The ones who come over and over and over again, God hears them. Now, if he's reluctant to give it to them, no, I think he's testing our desire. If my son comes to me at the table, supper table, he says, Dad, I want a bite. I'll let him glean one ear and out the other. If he says the next night, Dad, did you hear me last night? I want a bite. Oh, Okay. If he, at the next service, say, Dad, I need a bike. And he starts to describe what he needs it for. And every day for a month and two months and three months, he just keeps making it stronger and stronger. I'll it, say, you know what? I think this boy really does need a bike. And I think he'll appreciate it if we give it to him. <laughs> and I think that's what it is with God. Those prayers we pray one time and forget it, God says, well, I guess they weren't very serious. Uh, we'll wait to hear what they're serious about and then and we'll pay attention. All right, I, I'm trying to explain to you why he asked us to persevere in prayer. All right? Well, we must hurry on. Oh, my. Our Father, our Father, we need to pray as a brother. There are no plural pronouns in this prayer. It never says I. It never says me. It never says mine. It's all um, our Father. Okay? And you remember, I had this on the board it was, it, over there, when we come to the altar, we come with our brother. Not that he's there physically, but in our mind, if we think of any bad relationship with our brother, we get that straightened out. I want to show you an interesting passage, which turn to First John chapter 2. This is an amazing statement. You know, we read scripture so much, and uh, we don't really get the import sometimes, and, Scriptures are still striking me between the eyes that I read many times and didn't really see what was implied. Verse 10 of chapter 2, look what it says. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light. Now listen to this. And there is none occasion of stumbling in him. Is it true that all sin stems from a bad relationship with somebody? Stop and think about it. A man who fornicates does not love the woman. The man who lies does not like the person loves it, the person he lies to. He's perfectly not thinking about his interests. I think you can trace every sin to a bad relationship. And that's what it's saying. If you could truly love everybody, there would be no occasion for you ever to commit any sin. Now we'll never get that done perfectly, obviously. But that is a real challenge. Pray as a brother. The Bible says we need to comprehend with all things what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height. I cannot afford to have a division between me and my brother, between my church and that church. The broader the fellowship, the more we will experience the height, the depth, the breadth, and the length of the love of Christ. If you go to 1 John chapter 3, we were quoting from 1 John. When John gets through with his theological discussions, he makes an application three times. And every time, love your brother. That's the only practical application John ever makes in 1 John. Every time he dips down for a practical application, you have to love your brother. That's the, that's the practical application of all his theology. Number three, pray with reverence. Which are in heaven, God is the great other. Our problem is to tend to think of him like we think of people. Psalm 50, verse 21 says to idolaters, Your problem was you thought I was altogether like you. That's our problem. Nothing will ever be seen properly till we see it from God's perspective, and it's a large perspective. All of think of the spies that went into the land of Canaan. There were 12 of them. They all saw the same thing. They came back with different reports. But they all agreed it was a good land. And then 10 of them said, It's a land that eats up the inhabitants thereof. I don't know what was happening each other. Was their a plague? I don't know. But people were dying in that land. And of course, the obvious implication was, if we live here, we'll die too. But the two said, now wait a minute. They are bread for us. God is eliminating them because He told us He's going to give us the land. You see how God's perspective made a difference in what they saw? They both saw the same thing. Why did the two say that? Because God told them to go in and possess the land, and it only made sense that the people in the land were dying because God wanted them to possess it. But they had to see it from God's perspective. So we pray with reverence. We have a song in the symbol that says, Let knowledge grow from more to more, but more of reverence in me dwell. Concentrate more on what God has said, and let that be the interpretation of what you see. Okay? Number four, pray for reverence. Hallowed be thy name. Cyprian said this means that his name would be hallowed in us. That when people see us, they know something of our God, that he is holy. Okay? And we will never come to terms with God until we come to terms with his holiness. So back again to 1 John. At the beginning, he talks about all the wonderful things that he wants us to experience. And then you say, well, what's the secret? And the first thing he says is, God is light, in him is no darkness and all. You've got to get that down first for anything else you're going to do. You've got to understand God is holy. and so you come to terms with the sin in your life and deal with it, you're not going to have any relationship with God. In fact, John is the only person that's wonderful, and like powerful of love is the only person that four times in that book if you say this and do this, you're a liar. We thank the Saul, though, to be like these, not like the West. Baptist church that I hear about all the time on the phone, what for awful people they were. They give a horrible picture of God as this unreasonable, judgmental person that's always waiting to clobber somebody. We, we should be aware of the fact that what people see in us is what they're going to conclude about God. Number five, pray for a realization of His kingdom. I'm not going to talk about that one because we, always talked about, we already talked about it. I don't know if I gave you this concept. In Philippians, it talks about our conversation, our citizenship is in heaven. We're living here, but we're citizens of heaven. We're, we're ambassadors. We're aliens. The city of Philippi was like that. It was a Roman colony in the middle of a Greek culture. So if you walked toward Philippi, you heard the Greek language, language you saw Greek costume, you saw Greek laws, everything was Greek. until so you stepped inside of, of Philippi, and immediately it was Latin, it was Roman law, it was Roman dress, Roman customs, Roman culture. Stark difference between the two. And that's the picture that Philippians gives us. We are citizens of another kingdom. And it really should be obvious to everybody looking on that this is not U.S. culture. This is something starkly different. In fact, I think that's why the devil constantly wants to blur between the world and the, and the uh, kingdom of God. That's exactly what he wants. Our glory is in our contrast, in every respect, especially our values, but in in all of our lifestyle there should be this stark contrast. We don't place any emphasis on ourselves, the way we do our hair, the car we drive, the clothes we wear, the places we go, the entertainments we have, or whatever. The world sees, wait a minute, they do it all differently. It's completely different. They have a different set of values, and it affects all their life, Well, I said I wouldn't say much about that. I pray for obedience. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. No excuses for our human failures. How is God's will done in heaven? Well, look at Isaiah chapter 6. The angels immediately respond to whatever God says. They're quick. They fly here. They do this. They do that. They cover their face. They're humble. They cover their feet. They're obedient. How is God's will done? How do we know God's will? Let me give you a couple things to think about. If it's God's will, it's going to harmonize with, with what God has told us. It's amazing to me how many people do things that God clearly says we're not to do. You cannot serve God in mammon if people try to do it. It's a little bit like somebody, and, and, and if you ask them, they'll say, well, God revealed to me that I was free. yeah? That's like somebody praying outside a bank. Oh, they're praying. And you come and you say, "What are you praying for?" Well, I'm praying to see if God's going well for me to rob this bank. You say, "Get up off your knees." He told his to pray for that, but it's amazing I could give you all kinds of things that people have told me that God revealed to them in prayer, in total contradiction to what He's already told me. So to harmonize with God's word, number two, we have to commit ourselves to doing it before He will give us. Will. The Bible says if we will do His will, He will show us the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether it be of man." So you give God a blank sheet of paper and you say, I want to know your will, God. And He says, well, look. You see that little line on the bottom? Well, as soon as you sign it, I will start telling you my will. I want to know you're going to do it before I tell you. And if you're not going to do it, there's no point in me telling you. All right? Number three, A person who knows God's will is a person who commits himself to pleasing God. There is a difference between pleasing God and obeying. Now, they both can sort of be the same. But if I go to town and I tell my children, now I want you to straighten up your room, and I want you to wash the dishes, and I come home and that's all done, they have obeyed. But if while I'm in town, one of them says, oh, you know what, I heard Dad say the other day he wants someone to weed the garden, and it's a hot day, and I hate weeding the garden, but I'm going to weed the garden because I want to see the smile on Dad's face when he comes home. That's pleasing. That's the attitude we have toward the will of God if we're really going to be able to understand it and do it. So, three things. It's not the will of God if it doesn't harmonize with the Word of God. You'll not know the will of God unless you sign your uh, name on the line. Commit yourself to doing it before He tells you. And you probably aren't going to know the will of God if you're not committed to pleasing Him. He says, if you continue in My Word, then you will be My disciples. All right? I'd like to talk about legalism just a little bit. What is legalism? Well, it's certainly not obeying Jesus. How could legalism be obeying Jesus? I'll tell you what legalism is. Legalism is you have a code of behavior. It's probably a good code of behavior. I don't lie, I don't cheat, I don't whatever. It's probably a wonderful code of behavior. You got it from your parents, you got it from the church, you got it somewhere. And you refer to the code all the time. And they make you a pretty good person but you don't ever refer to the person behind the code. He can't ever tell you anything that's not on that code. Your reference is always the code, not the person. You maybe were sitting here this morning and you have your business all planned and maybe it's in violation of some things we talked about, but you're not going to hear Jesus because you have a code. You've already decided uh, how your business pleases God. It's on the code and you're doing the code. Legalism is doing the code without the person behind the code. That's what legalism is. It's never legalism to have a code of ethics that is constantly in reference to the person. He can speak outside the code, and he can tell you things that aren't on that list yet. That's not legalism. Number seven, pray for necessity. Give us this day our daily bread. Notice, doesn't say give me. It means when you bring your check home, it belongs to the whole brotherhood. Give us our daily bread. If there's somebody in that brotherhood that has a need greater than yours, that's part of this experience. Okay? We are to work so we have to give. That's the motive for working. I and mean, obviously meet the needs of our family. But the, 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 the thing that should be in our mind is, how can I have money to give? How can I bless other people? Okay? Christians are lavish givers. I wrote it on the board the other night. The Greek word for God loves a cheerful giver. The word for cheerful is the Greek word hilaros. God loves a hilarious giver. All right? And we realize, what I just said in the last message, that everything we can possibly give beyond our needs is treasure laid up in heaven. It is treasure against Matthew 25, where Jesus will say, Enter into the joy of thy Lord because you fed me, you clothed me, and all of that, and we're going to say, and I'm going to say, because I never feel like I've done nearly as much of this as I should have done. We're all going to be rather astounded that he was impressed with the little bit that we did. But he's looking for that, okay? Number eight, pray for forgiveness. This is the only part of the prayer that's repeated, and tells us why again where he gives an explanation. He doesn't explain any of the others, but he explains this one. He says, if you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. Now, forgiveness, the essence of forgiveness is to let the other person go. Okay? You don't try to get back again him. You absorb the pain. You absorb the indignation. And you let him go free. That's what Jesus did for us. He bore the pain, he bore the indignation, he bore the blame, you know, they blamed him, he's a sinner, and let us go. That's what you do when you forgive. But that's hard to do because it is totally unfair. My children say, Dad, you don't know what he did to me. And I say, that's what forgiveness is, what he did to you. Joseph, when he finally was taken out of that prison and given a wife, He had a child. Does anybody know what that first child was named? Manasseh. Does anybody know what Manasseh means? God has made me to forget. Joseph, what happened to you? I don't remember. No, no, no. Joseph could have told you every detail of what happened to him, but there was no bitterness. There was no anger. There was nothing like that in it. It would have just been a description. In fact, he'd have probably been trying to make uh, excuses for his brothers all along while he was explaining it to you. That says something to me. That says that if we truly accept the blame, we truly accept the indignation, we truly accept the pain, God will take it away. That person will be free, and then I will be free, and we'll all be free. He says if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. You'll be in a cage. Like Corey Boom pictured an enemy that she had. And in her dream, she had him in a cage. Of course, he couldn't get away, so she was going around the cage, jabbing him with a stick. And in the dream, God said, Corey, let him out of the cage. And Corey said, No. And finally, God convinced her to let him out of the cage. He gave her the key. She opened the cage. And guess who came out? Corey herself. There are many people who are in bondage to all kinds of things. Uh, <laughs> Depression. Loneliness. Addictions. Insecurity. Inferiority. You name it. Oh, I'm so lonely. When I have people who call from the billboard and they say they're depressed. The first thing I ask them do you belong, do you have anybody you haven't forgiven? Oh yeah my dad and I love, or this person oh they start into and I said okay you just keep them in the prison and then you just continue to be depressed as soon as you forget about yourself and start reaching out to other people and forgive and start communicating and so on, your depression will basically start to resolve we make our own prisons. The year of Jubilee in the Old Testament, they canceled all the deaths. They set everybody free. And Jesus said, you're just as free as you make other people. Forgiveness is a wonderful thing. The story is called of a Viet Cong uh, soldier who went to a children's home, a Christian uh, children's home, and uh, was going to kill the, the leader of that home until he remembered until he realized how many children this man was taking care of. And he said, okay, I'm not going to kill you, I will kill your son. So he brought his teenage son, and he killed him right there in front of his father. A few years later, the tide of war turned, and lo and behold, that Viet Khan leader was on trial for his wife. And he was to be sentenced to death. And the father of this boy stepped forth, and he said, look, when this fellow did this, he was a young fellow, he didn't understand, he killed my son, I, he, I need a son. Would you give him to me and let him be my son? This is his story. And the court was so impressed, they did that. And, and the, the record says this boy grew up with Christian training and today is a pastor in South Vietnam. Forgiveness. We were, You know, we weren't made for unforgiveness. I talked about that the other night. We were made to forgive. We were made to love. And when we don't forgive, the body of self breaks down. Doctors will tell you that most people are sick because they allow such things to lower their immune system, and then the disease takes over. We were not made to ingest hatred and unforgiveness. We were made to ingest love, forgiveness, good relationships. That's what we were made for. Number nine. I have four minutes. Pray against temptation. We're not praying against trials. We're told we will be tried, and I want to take time to look at one scripture. Would you look at Romans chapter 5? I think maybe I referred to this earlier. Paul says, I glory in tribulations. (laughs) Tribulation gives me patience. Tribulation gives me experience, character. Tribulation gives me hope. And tribulation gives me love. I get a lot of mileage out of tribulation. So he says, I glory in it. I don't know. I'd like for you to live around me and see how much I glory in my trials. But Paul did. We will be tried, but what we're praying for is in the trial, it's very easy, instead of accepting the trial and glorying in it and praising it, to begin to blame God, to begin to blame other people, to get on the phone to start gossiping, to run other people down and blame them for our problems. That's what we're praying for. That in the trial, we will let the trial do its perfect work and not venture into temptation. And God will do that. We sang I want a principle with him. And then we pray for deliverance. We pray for deliverance. Jesus tells us not to take our deliverance for, for, for granted. You know, the modern world believes in the goodness of man. Jesus did not. Jesus, Jesus believed there was real evil in this world. But he assured us that we can be delivered from it. And this is a part of the prayer that I focus on most when I'm praying every day. I pray this prayer deliver me, and actually it should be translated from the evil one, and that's how I pray it. Deliver me from the evil one. Lord, whatever difficulties I go through today, deliver me from venturing past that fine line into doing what is wrong. Blaming you, blaming other people. Deliver me from that. Help me to let the trial have its effect in my life. Jesus recognized the... the, uh, evil at the reality. The liberals today do not. And then they end up with disillusionment and all kinds of problems. Jesus assured us that God is on our side against evil. We can conquer with God's help. Romans eight, what people separate me from the love of God. And finally, we pray God is the kingdom. This isn't our kingdom. We are a kingdom of priests unto God. That's the first word is the first the use of the word kingdom in the Bible is Exodus nineteen six. He said, you shall be a kingdom of priests unto God, mediating God's kingdom to this world, getting them to experience and see the kingdom of God. We are not, It's not our kingdom, it's His kingdom. We have to do everything in His way. We have to never take the kingdom for ourselves and take control. We are only mediating His perfect kingdom to this imperfect kingdom, but we're trying as hard as we can to make it match the perfect kingdom that He represents. So let me read it quickly in one minute. Pray as sons, pray as brothers, Pray for reverence. Pray with reverence. Pray for real estate for the kingdom. Pray for obedience. Pray for necessity. Pray for forgiveness. Pray against temptations and pray for deliverance. Everything's in this prayer. It covers everything. So shall we bow our heads and pray it. Our Father, which art in Let's pray with me. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.